looking at it. Uh, pray with me before we read. Lord God, I pray that you would open our uh, eyes this morning by your Spirit. Help us to understand. Help us to see you, Jesus Christ. Not, not who we want you to be, Lord, but, but who you are. And, and you communicate this to us, who you truly are in your word. This is the only place. And by your spirit who is with us, Lord, you, you enlighten us. You help us to know you. And, and I pray, Lord, that you would do that this morning as we come to your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Starting in verse 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is God's word to us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. I was with someone recently who was making a seemingly impossible decision in their life. And it reminded me of different times that I've had decisions before me where there's just not a clear right option. And I think all of us have been in this sort of a situation. You look at what's in front of you and, and, and you have a a decision or you have something before you and there's just not a clear way forward. There's not a clear option for what's best. And, and, and I want you to think about your desires in situations like that, but, but not just situations like that. I want you to think about uh, your, your desires for what you want God to do for you or to communicate to you in situations where you face difficulties like this. Not just choices that need to be made, but, but situations where you, you wish for something to happen in your life. Or you wish perhaps for, for more control over something in your life. Maybe you deeply desire that God would answer a certain prayer, fix a certain problem, make your 
children act a certain way. Make your spouse act a certain way. We often have desires, and we often look at the situation in front of us, or maybe the choice in front of us, and we may think that the way forward seems entirely unclear or impossible, and we may think, why did God not give us, if he's communicating to us in his word, why didn't he give us something that could help us just fix things, or just Figure out what's best. What is the best choice for me? Give me some criteria. Give me some steps. Give me some ways to fix things. And if we're honest, I think sometimes we might even say that we're disappointed with what God has given us. What I want us to look at this morning is two things about Jesus that are not necessarily what people wanted from him or what people expected from him or what people desired from him. But friends, these two things about Jesus are the only reason that the coming of Jesus and the person of Jesus is good news, is truly good news for us. I want us first to look at the full humanity of Jesus, who he is as fully human, a true human being. You know, those, those people that wrote some of these second century works, like the gospel, infancy gospel of Thomas or these other works, part of what shows up time and time again is you see these, these things like, and especially in, in some of the infancy stories, these things like these miracles, or, or, or trying to come up with an explanation for why Jesus, who performed so many signs as an adult, so many miracles, where did that come from? When did that begin? So they, they come up with these infancy stories, where, where basically what's happening is Jesus uh, is, is sort of performing miracles in response to things or, or, or to avenge his, him being dishonored by this other child. Uh, or, or, or just willy-nilly. It's almost like, I think about the, you know, my kids love the movie Frozen. You know, and at the beginning, she's, she, if you've seen the movie Frozen, the children's movie, uh, she's, har- she's, she's got to harness her power. She doesn't know how to control it. And it's almost like they wanted to present a Jesus who was, who was so different than us, who, who, who had this power, and, and, and maybe he just had to figure out how to harness it as a child. Maybe he just, he just, he had these magical abilities and he just had to figure out how to, how to keep it in, how to, how to gain control over it. That's almost the feeling you get in some of these later sort of quote-unquote gospels. But that's not the picture we get in Scripture. This is the only story that we have, think about this, the only story that we have of about 29 years of Jesus' life. Jesus up to this point has been an infant, and then the one transition sentence we get was what we read in verse 40. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. That happened at about 40 days, and now Luke fast-forwards to 12 years later. And then after this story, he gives us another transition sentence, and he, and he fast-forwards to about 30 years later. Or Jesus is about 30, so about 18 years later. 
should say. So we have, in this 30-year period, one story from Jesus' life. You ever wonder why that is? You ever wonder why we don't actually hear about the vast majority of Jesus' life? We get almost nothing about it. Stories of him coming as a baby, and then stories from years 30 to 33, his public ministry, but nothing else. You know, we saw in some of the, uh, our, our looks at how Luke lays out the, the birth of Jesus Christ, we saw that, uh, that he highlights certain things, but he doesn't highlight a lot of other things. He highlights the, the fact that, that Jesus is born of a virgin because that's notable. But he doesn't highlight a lot, of, a lot of things because really most of it was a normal birth process. In, in and what I want you to see this morning is, is what the Gospels present to us is, is not some you know, child who's able to learn a dozen languages before he's three years old and he has all these special powers and abilities. They present to us a human. They present to us a, a, a man who began as a baby and a boy, went through puberty, grew up, And then begin to understand his mission. And from ages 30 to 33, we see that played out. Jesus' life was one that was fully human. Now I want you to notice just how, just how humble our Savior is in doing this before we talk about a little bit of the uniqueness of who he is. But, but just how humble he is, because, because we, we know now, after having read the entire Gospel of Luke and the entire New Testament, we know afterwards, looking back, that, that as Christians we believe he is fully God as well. He is presented as fully God. He does not stop being God when he becomes a man. And, and, and what's striking in this passage that we have before us this morning is just the humility of all of it, the humility of Christ. It, you, see, you see in the passage, it's bookended by verses 40 and 52, which say much the same thing. They say uh, that Jesus grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And then verse 52, Luke says again, he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. It, and here we get a picture of, of one who chooses to grow even though he was almighty. You ever think about that? God is the one being who never grows. God can't grow. Because to grow means that you're growing from one state of being into another. And God is always perfect. He's perfect from all eternity. He never was not perfect. He was never not whole. So he's the only being that never grows. But Jesus grew. God, who never grows, becomes a human being and chooses to go through the normal growth process. Not only that, the all-knowing one learns. The all-knowing one learns. It says here that he increased in wisdom and in stature. As he grew, he also actually grew in knowledge. The one who knew everything, who never, that's another thing that God never does. He never learns because he already knows all things. But Jesus chooses 
to come and to be educated by his mother and his father. He doesn't stop being the all-knowing God, but as a human, he comes and he learns. He has to learn his Old Testament. He has to learn his scriptures like every other Jewish boy and girl at his time. He he, he has to, to learn, actually, as he learns scripture, he begins as a human to understand his mission in light of the very scriptures that he wrote from eternity, that he inspired by the Spirit. The one who knows everything comes as a human being and subjects himself to learning process and growing process. Not only that, but the word himself, the one who who is scripture, who John describes as God's word in and of itself, he sits and he asks questions in this story. He sits and he asks questions of people who have studied. Have you ever been in a situation where, where... where you are explaining something to somebody and then you realize that they're like an absolute expert in that thing? I mean, talk about that feeling multiplied if they just knew who he was. If they just knew who he was. These teachers of the law, these men who had studied Scripture, studied the Old Testament, They're sitting with the word himself. And he's asking them questions. Jesus, in this great humility, comes as a full human. And friends, this is the only way that he's helpful to us. This is the only way that he is actually effective for our salvation. You see, uh, his... His coming as a human being is an identification with you. And what it does is it actually heals you. And by his death, he actually is able to be a substitute for you because he became like you. Though he created you, he became human for you so that you might live. You know, early church fathers used to uh, use the word recapitulation, recapitulation, uh, which is just a fancy way of saying that, that, that when Jesus came, he, he went through the entire experience of, human, of humanity. He was a baby. He went through puberty. He went through all, all the stages of development, and he, and he died as a 33-year-old man, grown man, He went through all these stages of humanity that we go through. And as Kelly read just a few moments ago, he is able to identify with you. You have a Savior who hasn't stayed separate from you or away from you, but he's come to you. You know, early early people who wrote these infancy gospels and other things, they thought they needed somebody with magic powers beyond them. So often we may think the same thing. We need someone who's unlike us, but we need, what we really need truly is someone who's like us. Someone who has become like us. And what he's done for you is the most humble thing that's ever been done. But, but you don't just need, friends, something, someone who is like you. It's not just any human being who can get this done, who can, who can give us what we need for salvation. And this is where I want to spend uh, the rest of our time, is by looking at the fact that Jesus is not only 
fully human, but he is also unique, utterly unique. I want to look through the passage for just a moment, this story that Luke lays out. Verse 41 says this, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And you have to understand from the beginning as we look at the story that the Feast of Passover is of particular significance to the Jewish people. The Feast of Passover is a time where, where there's a specific memory in mind. And it's the memory that, that we're reading through in our Exodus story as we read our Old Testament readings. It's that, that memory of slavery to a foreign power. The memory of, of subjection of utter loss of freedom. And it's a memory of God coming and delivering. It's the Jewish day of independence, if you will. But it's so much more than what we celebrate on 4th of July. And I would submit to you, many of us on 4th of July, we're probably not even thinking about what happened in 1776. Most times we're thinking about the barbecue uh, that's happening at our house. But if we were a people who were under the rule of somebody else, then we would be thinking about it differently. That's how the Jewish people were thinking about it. They had been subjected to slavery and set free, and now they had foreign rulers ruling over them once again. So this this Passover was a memory of what God has done in the past and a hope for what's to come a deliverance that's going to come in the future. They trusted that God was going to bring this deliverance, so they faithfully went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. That's the feeling that that Mary and Joseph are having as they're there. And and when Jesus is 12 years old, and we can pause here again and just think, you know, I thought about, what was I like as a 12-year-old? Well, I, my job options were to be a professional soccer player, you know, one day, or president. Or a taxidermist. Uh, my grandfather had taken me to get uh, stuffed, uh, he, he had he, something that he had killed, I forget, and get it stuffed. So a taxidermist was third on the list. That was, <laughs> that was me as a 12-year-old. You know, think about yourself as a 12-year-old. This, that's Jesus. That's where he is in his physical development, mental development as a human being. He's 12. Now, Jewish custom was that, that there was sort of a, a, a time of coming of age. You know, bar mitzvah didn't happen at this point. It happened, started happening a few hundred years after, uh, most likely, when, Jew, when Jesus was uh, living. But the, the Jewish custom was that there would be a sort of coming of age. So it's around this time in Jesus' life. So he's 12. And, and, they, and they leave, they go on this journey. Uh, and when the feast was ended, verse 43, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, and his parents didn't know it. Now, this isn't just an, a, an act of neglect. This isn't just them not paying attention. They, they, go, they would have taken these large caravans, because the reality is it's a three- or four-day journey to get to Jerusalem. And, and, and in this large caravan, uh, they... they need protection on the way. There are robbers on the way. There, there are different dangers on the way. So you need to travel in large groups. So you would travel in large groups of, of your kin and acquaintances, people uh, who are from Nazareth all traveling together. So they went together in a large caravan. So it would have been natural for them to assume that Jesus wi- was with 
one of their relatives, one of their friends. So they supposed him to be in the group, verse 44, but they went a day's journey, and, and then when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, they did not find him. So they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him, and after three days they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking questions. And I just want you to think about Mary's experience here. She's just spent a week singing about the deliverance of the Savior and, exp- and, and thinking about the deliverance of, of, of God uh, while celebrating the Passover. She, she just a chapter before has sung a song about uh, the specific deliverance that Jesus is going to bring and celebrating that, how he's going to raise the humble and bring down the proud. And, and, and she's endured this journey. She's endured the pain uh, of, of bearing Jesus as a child. Uh, she's, she's now gone 12 years of raising him. She, she's heard from other people, shepherds, wise men, uh, Simeon and Anna, as we've seen in the last few weeks, about who Jesus will be and what he will do. And she knows the oppression that her people are experiencing at the hands of foreign rulers, the Romans. And, and now, on this journey, she has to experience three days of terror when she realizes that I've lost him. My parents lost my sister briefly at Disney World. They, they blame it on my grandfather. <laughs> and they had 30 minutes of terror. And if you've ever lost your child even for a second, then you know that feeling. Three days of terror. They've lost him. And, and, and Jerusalem is just, I mean, it's like Disney World <laughs> in terms of trying to find a child probably even worse. So they go back, and they look for him. And she finds him sitting there, and and all of the worries and the anger and the angst pour out of her. And she says, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And the word great distress there is is communicating uh, almost a traumatic event. It's, It's deep anxiety. Why have you done this to us? And this is Jesus' response in verse 49. Why were you looking for me? What? Excuse me? Why were you looking for me? This seems like an utterly disrespectful response, but it's not. It's not, and here's why. Look what he says next. Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? And here, Jesus cuts through everything. I want you to see how. He cuts through everything. He, 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 he gets at the heart of it all. This is the climax of, of all of these first two chapters in Luke. And I want you to see how this is the case. Okay, his most important relationship, he says, is not his relationship to Mary, his mother, not his relationship to Joseph, his guardian father. It's his relationship to his eternal father, his heavenly father. Now, this sounds like it's bad or hurtful news to Mary. Because you would think Mary, you know, Mary would desire to be close to her son. She's just gone through this deep anxiety. It sounds like this is bad news for Mary. But, but, but I want you to notice why it's not. 
This is what Mary doesn't fully understand yet. It's not bad or, or hurtful news to her. It's actually the only possible good news for her. See, what Jesus is showing her is that while he's fully human, he's also utterly unique. Utterly unique. This 12-year-old boy says to his mother that, that while he is her son, and he will go and submit to her, and he will go and obey her, there's something more important about him, more unique about him. He is the son of God. He'll show this again later in his life when Mary and his brothers and his family members will come and they'll ask to see him. And, and someone will come in and say, Jesus, Mary and your brothers are here. They want to see you. And he'll respond to them by saying, these, my disciples, are my brothers and my mother. This is my true family now. He'll also uh, get at the same point later when he'll tell his disciples that, that anyone who comes after me and follows me must hate his father and his mother and his brothers and his sisters and his children and his spouse. It, it, anyone who comes after me must hate even his own life. And what does Jesus mean there? It, it, clearly, he doesn't mean, based on everything that we have in Luke's gospel and everywhere else, he doesn't mean that, that he... That, that in order to follow Jesus, you've got to treat other people with hatred or contempt. What he means is that, that the gospel, that what he's come to do is so, so utterly life-changing that every other relationship will look like hate in comparison to the love that I now have for God. And, and he models it in this story. In a moment that looks a bit disrespectful, Towards his mother, he's showing her that, that, that his most important relationship is to God himself. And that's what he's come to do, is, he, is, is he's come to turn our lives upside down. That, that, that we would have that love for God, that every other relationship in our life would look like hate. Compared to our love for God. He doesn't treat his parents with contempt, but he knows that, that this relationship is so far and above important so much more important than his earthly relationship with his parents that he says, why are you looking for me? Didn't you know? It's good news for Mary and it's good news for us. Remember, Mary had a desire, a set of desires here, a desire for a relationship with her son, a desire to find him, but also a desire for the deliverance that he was going to bring from this foreign captivity. And Mary's desires went centuries back. This is a big ask and there's not a clear way forward. And what Jesus shows her is that, that the deliverance that I am going to bring doesn't just go centuries back. It actually is an even bigger ask than you could have ever imagined. You think that deliverance from a foreign enemy is a big ask, but Mary, there's an even bigger ask, and it goes back to the very beginning of humanity. Because just as, as Mary, Mary and Joseph had to go searching for Jesus, in the same way, at the very beginning in the garden, what happens but God creates beings in his own image, man and woman, Adam and Eve, and they rebel against him. They do the one thing he told them not to do, and then he goes and he looks for them. He searches. He says, where are you? Where are you? He knew where they were. But he asks, where are you? He graciously searches, and, and, he, and he finds them, and he, and he says, I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to 
allow you to physically die, which is a right punishment for what you've done, but I'm going to send you away from this place because if you stay here, you would die. Because to be in the presence of a holy God and to be sinful is the ultimate problem for us. We cannot survive. And he sends them graciously away, and they go away. But now, in this story, as Mary and Joseph have been searching, and I imagine they were running around Jerusalem saying, Jesus, where are you? And they come to him, and they find him sitting there in the temple, the temple that represented everything that the garden was, that, that, that represented the very presence of God with his people. And for the first time since Adam and Eve sinned, a human being belongs in God's presence. And can be there and live. Jesus says, that's the problem I've come to solve. I've come to solve this broken relationship with your father, your creator. A relationship that I have with my father from all eternity. And that now I'm bringing you back into. Mary thought her problem was big. Jesus showed that it was much bigger. Mary thought the deliverance would be big. Jesus said, my deliverance is not going to be on your terms. It's not what you think it will be, but it's much bigger. And friends, you have desires. You want God to do things in your life, and that's important. These are big things. These are important things, and and, and it's right to pray to him about those things and to ask for those things. But friends, he's come ultimately to solve a problem that's so much bigger for each of you. You need this relationship with the Father. And the only way to it is to give your heart, your life, your everything to Jesus Christ. The one who belongs in his Father's house. Friends, we're going to take just a moment to take communion this morning. And and this is a visible sign and seal of this relationship, this covenant promise that God has made to his people. He doesn't just tell us about it in his word, but he actually gives you a sensory experience of it. He gives you the ability to taste and to touch these reminders, these symbols of his grace to you. If you are here this morning and you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you are united to him, then I invite you to come to this table this morning and to receive his grace. Not only in his word, but also in these elements the bread and the wine. Things that he has given to us to remind us of who he is and what we need in him.